0: I'm Allie Wenner, and today I'm here with Gu Wong, who is constantly pushing the boundaries between music and technology. That's him you're hearing playing the X-Files theme song using an app he created called Ocarina, which lets users make their own music by blowing into their smartphone's microphone and then creating different tones by pressing their fingers on the screen. After getting his PhD in computer science from Princeton in 2008, Gu co-founded the mobile music startup company Smule, and the apps he created through that company have reached more than 200 million users. Now he's a professor at Stanford in the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. And as if all of that wasn't enough, he just wrote a book called Artful Design, Technology in Search of the Sublime, which was released last September. Well, welcome, Go, and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks, Allie. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. So let's talk about your new book, Artful Design. What is the concept of Artful Design and how does it relate to the work that you do?
1: so artful design well uh, i've been writing this book for three years uh it's a comic book but to be honest i don't really know what it's about anymore myself uh but i think it's about how we shape technology but being very cognizant of the ways that the things we shape with technology comes back to shape us and if you think about like kind of just everyday lives today we're surrounded by technology and Most of the time we think of them as kind of tools that kind of help us do things, but the way in which these things are shaped come back to, I think, shape us, shape our behavior, shape the way we think, Mm -hmm. shape our relationships with each other. And so this book is kind of a, well, it's kind of a meditation on that, but also thinking about how to translate that as builders, as engineers, as designers into the things we actually build with technology.
0: And earlier when we were talking, you kind of descri- you described it as sort of a textbook. Is this something you would give to like a classroom or you know who's kind of the the target audience for this
1: well it's uh it, it is a kind of a strange textbook it's It's a comic <laughs> book, it's a five hundred page comic book. right now I'm actually using it in my in my course at Stanford um, in my art of design course, we're using this as the primary textbook, and we're reading about a chapter a week, and there are eight chapters spanning everything from audio-visual design to programming to interface design to game design to kind of the ethics of design.
0: What's that class called? What are you, what are you doing in that class?
1: So the course I'm teaching, uh, this term is called Music Computing and Design, The Art of Design. And next quarter, I'm teaching a course for first-year students called Design That Understands Us. And both of these courses will use this book kind of as a, as a strange textbook. It's probably the most comic Key uh, colorful textbook one might use
0: <laughs> yeah I'll agree I mean I've never really seen a book like this before I mean it's like probably like Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban like thickness and heaviness but it's also kind of like a comic book I mean you have kind of like talk bubbles and then lots of different pictures but they're actually like digital photos and not like I guess cartoon drawings um why publish a book in this particular format
1: so yes, the medium, as you notice, is, a, is I guess what they would call a photo comic. So uh, most of it is not drawn; most of it's 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 actually photographs. And for me, I think I feel like writing a book about design. It, it felt like I really should very intentionally and very clearly have have designed the thing. So this is, well, as they say, the medium is the message, and uh, and the medium here really I wanted to use that to to shape actually the message of the book. And that itself is an example, I think, of design. So I wanted this kind of recursive thing of talking about design, but in a way that itself is design. And the book, well, it, like all books, it's it's an artifact of design. This one, a very specific one in the in the medium of the photo comic. And the second thing I would say is that the, um, well, it's a it's a nonfiction book. So for me, like, and I grew up with comic books. I grew up reading Tintin, Adventures of Tintin, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, um, Watchmen. Um, you know, all these asterisks, these are, uh, I think, stories that are told fictionally, I, I, I like them drawn in a way. Because, you know, yes, we have, like, movies made from superheroes like Batman, right? But those, if they weren't in a comic book, you'd be, like, wondering, wow, you know, who's that playing Batman? Like, there's a fiction, there's another layer you would wonder about, like, in a comic book. So it makes sense that it's drawn, but in a non-fiction book... That's about kind of everyday things, then uh, I think I wanted to remove that level of I don't know of there's no acting. It's actually this is this is what it is. So it made sense that a nonfiction book about design is actually um, uses actual photographs.
0: There's something like 1,600 photos in this book, and many of them are of you, the pictures that you took of yeah. yourself.
1: <laughs> so uh, there are over 1,600 photos in this book. I took about over 1,300 of them. The rest came from Creative Commons, public domain, or specific ones obtained by permission. Um, the ones I took, yeah, many of those are uh, – well, I took more selfies than is probably advisable for, for anyone. Um, <laughs> I had like a whole rig where I – I would shoot, be able to shoot uh, kind of selfies, either at a distance or up close. Um, and there are times when I would just film myself talking at the camera, only to go back and actually pull stills, frames out of the video to be used in, in this. I have I have this matrix of like probably like eight hundred different stills of me just in like really different gestures, different you know giving off different affects, and every time I needed to. Say something in the book. I would scan through this this rather large matrix of uh of me having talked to the camera and find the closest one that matches the affect I was looking for.
0: Jeez, sounds like quite a process.
1: It, it was it took me three years to write this book, <laughs> and but it was it was transformative for me just way to recompile my brain
0: i mean and flipping through the pages here i mean this the content is kind of wide-reaching you know you, you go into like the genesis of the princeton laptop orchestra the stanford Talk orchestra and you know everything from um ocarina your and your some of the music social apps you've created and also computer programming and but you kind of really bring them all together and show how they're interconnected um do you see this book as sort of like the culmination of the various different kinds of work that you have done in the span of your career so far
1: I think the book very much began as that. I want so you know, I do computer music. I'm a computer music researcher. I build instruments, tools, games, um programming languages in service of music so people can use them as tools to make music with the computer. Um and so really computer music is very much kind of the the main vehicle for the book, but as you mentioned it I think I'm using computer music as a really as a concrete case study. And using really technology and music, two things that I think we really all find in all of our lives. There's something universal about about both of these things uh, to look at really technology and and its shaping more broadly. So at some level, it's a computer music book. uh, At some level, it's actually an ethics book. Uh, It's a book that asks, you know, what does it mean to design well? That's in the craft of design. I think it also asks, what does it mean to design ethically? And why should we bother to do that? And we, what does ethics have to do with design uh, and technology? Of course, this is, a, this is a topic that's very top of mind today.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And speaking of computers and music, which you were bringing up a, a second ago, I want to backtrack to your Princeton days for just yes. a minute. Um, and for your dissertation here in the computer science department, you actually designed an audio programming language called CHUCK. So I'm wondering, I mean, what – what does that mean? I mean, how does one program audio, and how similar is this program to like, other mainstream programming languages like Python or JavaScript?
1: So, uh, yes. Um, so Chuck is a computer music synthesis language. You can use it to generate sound, but really what you're doing is you're writing code to produce sound, and you can also write code to organize those sound in, into music. And you can also or- use Chuck to uh, take sensor input, for example, the trackpad on your laptop or the keys or other sensors or a joystick and then map them into sound output and to, to do that, in, you know, with the intention of creating a musical interface of with a computer. And that's kind of what the, the laptop was all about, the laptop works was all about. So, uh, yeah, in, in my time at Princeton, uh, which was from 2001 to 2007, uh, I had the fortune of working with uh, my advisor, Perry Cook, who was in computer science but also jointly appointed in music and uh, Professor Dan Truman who is currently of course still here uh, (laughs) and they were kind of my mentors they were my heroes and they still are um, (laughs) are both of those things and so I think really it was kind of this adventure of thinking about how do we use the computer to to shape it into something we can make music with and make music that is meaningful that you know that matters to us uh, but also to explore When new possibilities exist for this medium of the computer?
0: That's so awesome. And, I mean, did Chuck and your dissertation have any role in the creation of SMULE?
1: Very much so. All these things are really connected. So, you know, I started working on Chuck, um, I think, rather early in my Ph.D. here at Princeton. Uh, And then Perry and Dan started the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, and I was very fortunate to to be really part of that, to, to think about how to, what tools we use, how do we teach this, how do we shape this, and will this even work right and uh, uh, And we built a lot of instruments you know using Chuck and other tools in the laptop orchestra, and later, you know i I started it on the faculty at Stanford in two thousand and seven, and there you know I started the Stanford Laptop Orchestra, but kind of this experience of working with the computer with building tools, building instruments those kind of translated into you know, kind of the things that I would design in Smule. Right. And, uh, and in fact, I think Smule came out of the culmination of having done all these crazy, whimsical things with computers and music. Uh, But then here comes the iPhone. Right. And here's, here's a smartphone, which you can program and has a lot of sensors. It has a powerful CPU can do graphics, all this It has sensors. You can take user input into it's always connected to the internet and, and so, yeah, it's this, like, continuing pooling of different elements, but they all seem to end up fitting together one way or another.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you, you mentioned the release of the iPhone, which I think was, like, late 2007, which would have been perfect. I mean, right when you were kind of wrapping up here and starting to venture out into that technology, computer programming world. Um, And I I know the first app was Ocarina, which I think came out in 2008. And you were the chief designer and architect of... um, Yeah, so it's been on the iTunes store since 2008. And and now it's one of Apple's all-time top 20 apps. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that app and maybe some of the other apps that you've been involved with at Smule and kind of how the company has evolved over the last 10 years as so much has been changing in tech and how we use our phones and our tablets.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. Ocarina... You know, it's an app for your iPhone, but you play it. You they ask you to use the iPhone in a way that you typically don't think of as how you use a phone. You know, typically we have a phone, we might use our thumb or different fingers to type into, but we think of it as this like vir- portal into this virtual world. But ocarina is like no, you hold the phone like you m- might a sandwich and you blow into it to make music, <laughs> and it's a very physical, uh, you know, kind of a use usage of your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And the whole design behind ocarina is that this is you know, your phone, your phone is not simulating a, a flute-like instrument. Your phone is the ocarina. And you blow into it, and you use your fingers to control the pitch, and you tilt it to control vibrato. Um, and uh, it's really kind of this playful toy, a musical toy for your phone. I think from the beginning, much like the laptop orchestra, it's really thinking about as broadly as possible, what are the pos- musical possibilities for, for these kind of computer technologies, whether it's a laptop or a mobile phone. And I think this kind of thinking has, you know, shaped all subsequent apps at Smule. And um, in terms of this belief, this value, if you will, that music making does a person good, and we can shape technology to help people really discover that really about themselves. And it's not like, it's not even music education. It's more like self Fashioning in a way, it's like, hey, you can have fun being expressive, playing music, and you can do this for the sheer intrinsic joy of of doing that. And hey, it's music, you know, it's something that any normally endowed human being would, I think, this speaks to. It's something there's music and dance. That's something that has been with us, you know, well, uh, throughout all of history. So, uh, and, and the other component of Ocarina is the social component, right? It's uh, it's its component where well, on one hand, you're blown to the phone to make music, but you can also listen to other people blowing to their phones around the world. Strangers playing everything from Amazing Grace or Legend of Zelda from Indonesia, or The X Files from Florida, or Final Countdown from Korea, and you, it makes you wonder. It's like, who are these people, and why are they playing that particular tune? And of course, the app gives you no answers not designed to but it's designed to make you well to make you wonder and to feel connected to to others so i think the social dimension has also been something that's carried through and is pervasive through really all the Smule labs.
0: Yeah. And to go back, I know you mentioned earlier um, about how you work at Stanford now. You're a professor there and you started the Stanford Laptop Orchestra, which I think is at least loosely based on the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, which was um, started when you were in grad school here, as you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit more about what a laptop orchestra is and how, how it works?
1: Stanford Laptop Orchestra, or SLORC, is is more than loosely based on the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, Plork, right? And, and it, the, the variety and the innovation comes from the people who are in it ear to ear. And they come up with new and crazy and wonderful and whimsical things. New instruments, new pieces. So it's really a medium for designing instruments with computers and performing, writing music for those instruments and performing that music together. Um, so Stanford Laptop Orchestra or Slork has now been around for 10 years uh, since 2008. Plork has been around since 2005. So I think the medium, the laptop orchestra. Well, wow, we're in our like 13th or 14th year in this, in this, this scale and in this form. Um, oh, and what was the other part of the question?
0: So I guess you know h- how similar is Slork and Plork to a regular orchestra? Ah. I mean, are people set up? Are there different sections? Are there you know a similar number of musicians?
1: So it's similar in scale, well, perhaps more to like a chamber ensemble. And very much Dan Truman had this idea that a laptop orchestra is plays a kind of electronic chamber music, uh, meaning, well, we would have anywhere between four to maybe 20, sometimes more kind of uh, stations, where each station is like a laptop, a human, and a special hemispherical speaker array. Now, the speaker array is meant to, have the sound be local to the player and the computer. So, in a way, we're trying to figure out the, the possibilities of computers for music, but on the other hand, preserve something that's really nice about traditional acoustic instruments, which is the sound. You know, when you play like a violin or a ukulele, the sound naturally comes from the artifact. And that, I think, acknowledgement or awareness completely changes the way you would actually design an instrument for something like a laptop orchestra, which in turn, changes the way you think about writing music for that instrument changes how you perform it so laptop orchestra is is a kind of orchestra where if you're at a concert it's the closer you are to the orchestra the better you almost want to be like in the middle of it because then sound is coming from all around you Uh, you're almost in this garden or sometimes a wall of sound and in terms of how people play their instruments in the in a laptop orchestra it's very it's very diverse um, sometimes there are people, yeah, we're just barely, like barely touching our computer and just staring at the screen and, and you're wondering what in the world are they doing. <laughs> in other pieces, it's extremely physical where we are actually jumping around, waving our arms and also like in ways that are very visible. So the way you would play these kind of instruments is really dependent on that particular instrument some some of them have wide gestures some of them have very small ones you know and the sound is really well that's you know the the thing about a computer is that you can you can generate you know a sound that you just can't hear anywhere else so sometimes we would get you know sounds that are just kind of out of this world so to speak Um, and we think about how do we meaningfully play those sounds and shape them into music and shape the music together as a Group.
0: And Gus, so much of your work uh, revolves around not just creating music and creating new instruments, but also making them accessible and fun for people of all musical abilities. What do you love about this?
1: Uh, well, I, I feel very lucky that I, that my job seems to involve like making things that help other people like make music or rock out. And sometimes I write music, and and it's, so this whole act of design—it's kind of a privilege to 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 do. Um, at the same time, I think it reflects something of, you know, just, just this belief that making music is like a, that's a, that's a good thing. (laughs) It's a good thing for everybody. And the more we do it, you know, maybe that stands to make ourselves, make us, you know, happier and better. Um, and, and so doing that, I think has this, you know, very gratifying side to it and, um, I mean, I could say a lot more about that, but I think at the very least, I think it's just it, – it's very gratifying to do. It, and it's – also, you know, I'm a, I'm a total geek. I love computers. You know, I, <laughs> I think from just watching – like I remember seeing the first video game. I think I was seven years old and I was in an arcade in like Beijing. I was like – for the first time, I saw a video game and I still remember – just how bright the pixels looked, and I was mesmerized. I know from there. I think I was just there's something about the computer as a medium itself that I just love to geek out about. Um, but then to really try to understand it as a medium, and to work with it day in day out, uh, whether it's software, whether it's hardware, whether it's really interaction, interaction design, and or whether it's designing tools or games. Um, yeah, it's. It, I think it's becoming some, becomes something of an uh, of an art for me, because um, it just this is my medium, um, and I think I appreciate it, it kind of as as this kind of medium for shaping things.
0: Awesome. What can we expect next from go Wang going forward?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. So uh, currently, um, my students and I uh, at Stanford, and we're at the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics, or Karma, and we're. We're exploring, among other things, uh, the possibilities of virtual reality and augmented reality for music. So we're Whoa. really kind of, in a way, it's very different, right? The medium is completely different. It needs to be approached that way. But we're also figuring out what things translate from, kind of uh, this, you know, having built instruments and tools and, and other mediums with the computer. How do they? In what ways do they translate? In which ways that do they not translate? in when we design instruments in VR. And what does it mean to perform together in VR? And what does it mean to to go to, well, to even like attend a performance in VR? Is that even a thing you would do? Or is it just participatory kind of by default? So I think there are a lot of questions around VR. Most of it, well, I would say some of it come from kind of an apprehension or a fear that VR is this medium that's going to just take over. And is that, in what ways is that good for us and what ways is that not? But also this curiosity of like, what new possibilities for music making, you know, kind of uh, lie in in this new medium.
0: Well, that sounds super exciting. Really looking forward to seeing what comes up with you, UNEXCA. And I just wanted to say thanks again for your time today. It's been so awesome talking to you. And I really appreciate you uh, coming down to Princeton to, to talk more about your work.
1: Thank you, Ali. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be back.
0: This interview was recorded at Princeton's broadcast studio with help from Daniel Kearns. And the music is licensed from firstcom.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, we invite you to subscribe to Princeton Alumni Weekly Podcast in iTunes. We'll be publishing more interviews all year long.